This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Women of color today are contributing to an unprecedented waves of first, whether it's the first in a family to attend college, the first to serve as CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or the first in public office. Women of colors are reaching new heights of influence. Cecilia Munoz is a first, and she knows what it means to make her way without exemplars to follow. She draws lessons from the challenges she faced as a senior Hispanic person in the Obama White House and as a longtime powerful voice in the civil rights movement. Today, she's with us to share her insights as an offering of inspiration to other Latinas and other women of color who are no longer willing to be invisible or left behind. I welcome Cecilia Munoz. Thank you so much. So I just want to say your book is incredible. I loved reading every single page of it. It's, it's going on my Christmas list for my nieces and other young women that need to hear this. And it also resonated with me so much in terms of, you know, I've been a first in many of my positions that I've held over the years. But let's start with your personal narrative. You know, who, who are you and what led you? you know, to your professional experiences, you know, at the National Council of La Raza, um, to the White House. What's your story? So I am a Midwestern Latina, which is a thing. (laughs) There are a lot of us. So my parents were immigrants from Bolivia. Um, They came to Detroit, which which is where I was born. So I grew up in one of those wonderful, messy immigrant families that are so much part of the American story. Um, And I you know, entered public service kind of by accident. And I tell that story in the book because um, I think it's important, especially for people starting out to know that sometimes you find your way by mistake or by accident or by trying out one direction and discovering that it's a different direction that is really the one that belongs to you. Um, so I uh, I ended up in Washington, D.C., working for the National Council of La Raza, as you heard. Um, and I was there for 20 years. It's now called Unidos U.S., Um, And I started as a specialist in immigration policy. I had worked as a graduate student in in California uh, as a volunteer um, in a a legal services program that was serving immigrants. Um, I found my way um, to work as a direct service provider in Chicago and discovered that that I wasn't cut out for direct service, but I also found my voice as an advocate. So when I got to Washington, which was in the late 1980s, um, we were still... Latinos were still invisible in Washington in a lot of respects. And we were invisible in most of the country, except in places like California or the Southwest, Florida, New York, Chicago. But aside from that, the notion of, of, of the phenomenon of a Midwestern Latina, for example, was pretty alien to the rest of the country. So I have, I feel like I had this great good fortune of having my career kind of span that time period from us being invisible to becoming visible, we're now the nation's largest minority. And um, and 
I, you know, learned along the way what it takes to um, to speak on behalf of a community, to learn to have influence in official Washington, um, and to go myself from being invisible to being visible, as our community also went from being invisible to being visible. And I got asked to serve by President Obama to my astonishment after he won the election in 2008. Uh, I wasn't expecting to go into government. I was shocked to find myself going into government. And I spent eight years working in the West Wing for him, which was an extraordinary experience. And I'm now at an organization called New America, where I'm, I lead a project on public interest technology and trying to continue work that I learned when I was in government and that I kind of built over the course of my career. Um, and, you know, I, I wrote the book because I think as women of color, I think the world needs us right now. Yes, um, absolutely. And I, I, I wrote it in the hopes that others would recognize that we are already the leaders that we need to be and it's time to step up. You, you, you mentioned being invisible and I can totally relate to that. Um, I'm Dominican and so growing up in Southern California, there were a lot of Mexicanos, but there were no Dominicans. And so I right. actually did um, a video piece on, on invisible identities and went on throughout my career to really document immigrants that were invisible in the locations where they were. So I completely relate to that. Um, but let's get back to your work in, in the White House and working with President Obama. Describe the importance of being the first Latina or Latino in, in that in the position that you held, you know, director of the Domestic Policy Council. And um, what was that? Why was that so important? And what was that experience like? So it was an amazing experience. So I was in the White House for all eight years. The first three, I was the director of intergovernmental affairs, which meant that I managed the president's relationships with state and local and tribal governments. And then um, the domestic policy advisor, a really wonderful woman named Melody Burns, um, left after three years, and I was promoted to her job. Uh, so, um, and I served as the president's domestic policy advisor for five years. Um, and that job requires working essentially with the president's cabinet to drive the policy making, the decision making around the president's priorities to him. So it meant I was at the senior staff table. Um, it meant that, you know, we were, I, I, I was helping address some of the enormous challenges that our country faces. I was also the first Latino to serve in that role um, ever in our country's history. And I was frequently, although the, President Obama fielded an extraordinary and very diverse team, the senior staff table was small. And I was very frequently the only Latino at that table. And the notion of being a first or, or an only, and, and in this case, I was both, carries a lot of weight. Um, and I interviewed seven of other women of color in preparing the book who had also, who've had also extraordinary careers. And they described the same thing, that you, you feel the weight of when you speak, you're not just speaking for yourself, you feel a little bit like you're speaking for everybody. And you especially feel if you make a mistake, that is not just your mistake, it's our mistake. And I tell, I recount the story in the book that when I, when I got that promotion, the outgoing chief of staff, um, a guy, a guy by the name of Bill Daly, who is a very dedicated public servant, um, he left his post about a month after uh, I was promoted domestic policy director, and he 
in, did some interviews with a couple of folks who were writing books about the first term of the Obama presidency. And he told them both that my being hired for that job was the last straw that caused him to leave. And he gave both of those writers the impression that, you know, this was an affirmative action hire who was maybe not so qualified for her job. And uh, that cost me a couple of years of confidence, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I tell that story in the book, not to dime out Bill Daly, who, again, is a perfectly dedicated public servant, but and, and because he told two folks who were writing books about it, I, I felt it was okay to talk about. And I actually think it's important to talk about because of, you know, the women that I interviewed, all of us have been through a version of the same thing. where and it's a pretty common experience where someone makes it clear to you that they think you're there for diversity and they're not so sure that you belong. It's a very common experience. And part of what the book is about is to offer strategies for those of us who face those experiences because there are so many of us. It's very common. And so one of the things we do and I did um, is to prepare, right? So the book is called More Than Ready and the title refers to the fact that I think the world is more than ready for what we bring. But it's also called More Than Ready because every single one of us does our homework, over-prepares, tries really hard not to make a mistake. And it's a strategy for overcoming the doubts that we are aware of around us, but also the doubts that, that we bring ourselves, right? So when you doubt yourself, when I doubt myself, one of the ways I handle it is by doing the work, making sure that I, I, I know what I need to know to be in the room successfully so that I minimize the likelihood that I'm going to make a mistake. So you're constantly crossing your T's and dotting your I's. That's exactly right. So, That's exactly so this right. book is an amazing testament to resilience, belief in self, allyship, challenges, family, and life. And so I understand you wrote a paragraph a day, and it took you a year to write this book. Yep. Can you talk about the emotional and the spiritual process of putting your experiences into words? Yeah, that's what a wonderful question, Sonia. So I did not leave the White House thinking I was going to write a book. Um, and many of my colleagues did, and some of them have written beautiful books. Um, but I did what a lot of women do, which is I left my job, I found another place to do good work for the world, and I kept my head down and I focused on my work. But several women in my life kind of refused to let me off the hook and said to me, you know, you've, you, you've had this extraordinary range of experience and we think you might have something to say. You should think about whether you have something to say. And I did what women do. I said, oh, you know, who am I to put these thoughts on paper and who would really read this stuff? And, um, but then I realized that, you know, I do a lot of public speaking around the country and I tell stories from the course of my career and I tell the same stories because I can tell that they resonate. And invariably, when I give a talk like that, someone comes up to me afterwards. And most of the time, that person is a woman. And most of the time, that woman is a woman of color. And she'll say to me something like, that thing you said about that time that you were afraid or that time when you were the only one in the room, that was me. It was like you were talking to me. And I thought I was the only one who felt that way. So thank you for saying that. So I realized that in some ways, remembering those women is what allowed me to give myself permission to believe that I had something to say. And the minute I gave myself permission, I knew it was going to be in all 10 chapters of the book. It was like immediately clear in my head. And as you say, I and my wonderful CEO, a woman named Anne-Marie Slaughter, 
who manages to run a think tank while writing scholarly books herself, <laughs> right. uh, said to me, you know, if you know what you want to say, if you write a paragraph a day in a year, you've written a book. It's not so daunting. And she was right. Um, but this, this is a thing that we do, right? I think of it as like a little voice in my head that says, who are you like, do you really belong here? Who are you to say these things? And who's really going to listen to you? And part of what the book is about is learning how to shout that voice down and to give yourself permission to take up a little space, to recognize that you have capacity, and most importantly, to recognize that the world needs you to bring that capacity, especially now. You know, I wrote this book before the crisis that we find ourselves in, but I also wrote this book, you know, in this moment of living in the Trump administration. And I'm just, it's so clear to me that we can't afford to let any of our leadership qualities go unused. We can't leave that on the table, especially not now. Exactly. Because the world really needs us right now. Yeah. So let's dig a little bit into overcoming obstacles. Two of your chapters deal with daring to be disliked and facing setbacks. And you started to talk a little bit about that. As women of color, we know all too well um, what that means and what it feels like. How did you deal with those challenges? It was important to me to include those sections in the book, even though it, you know, meant owning up to things that are not always easy to say in public. Um, But, you know, there's a chapter called Daring to be Disliked. And, you know, it's one of the things that you sign up for, really, when you go into public services that, you know, uh, and I tell the the story that when I was announced as someone who's going to be joining President Obama's team, I got an email almost right away from an advocate that I know who wrote, congratulations, and now we're going to criticize you. And, you know, exactly, yeah, that's what it's yeah. like. And so I, I thought a lot about what were my strategies for coping with that. And the thing that became really clear to me is that it matters a lot to have a North Star, to know what it is that you're there to achieve. If you're there for yourself, it kind of shows. But if you're there for for a purpose... Um, and it's, it's clear to you what the purpose is, then it's easy to kind of let go of the desire to be liked because the desire to be liked is a different purpose. And if that's your goal, you can make decisions that lead you towards that goal, but it's frequently the wrong goal. It, it, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to be unlikable. You can be the likable person who is striving for you know, a particular policy goal or a particular goal at work or a goal in your life or in your family. But it's clear to know what it is. It's important to know what it is because then you can make decisions that drive you there and you can let go of whether or not people like you as you make those decisions. And as long as you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I did my best today to get there, you have to let that be enough. And I also recount that the advice that was given to me by a dear friend who said, you know, it's pretty, it, the, the, one of the most useful things you can do is remember to get your love at home. Right. So if you're if you're looking for love in your workplace, if that's where you get your your um, sense of uh, validation, then you then you're going to be searching for it and you will make decisions that are about getting validated. But if whatever your circle is at home, whether it's your family or your circle of friends or your pets or whoever it is, if you if the love you get at home is what fills you up, then you don't have to look for it at work. And you can make hard decisions that are driving towards a specific end and let go of the notion that this is about whether whether or not people love me. And I, that 
that advice came in very handy in yes, the years yeah. that I was in the White House and since. Good. Wow. That's wonderful. I always get hugs and kisses from my sons when, when I come home. And now that I'm home all the time, right. I'm getting them all the time. <laughs> That's the best. And what else do you need, really? <laughs> exactly. What advice do you have for those of us who are just looking for the energy to persevere during this global pandemic and protest in support of Black Lives Matter? Oh, Sonia, what a great question. Um, I, I have to say, and I say this with all humility as a, as a, a light-skinned Latina, um, that even for me this has been hard. And I know that it's so much harder for so many others. And so many of my colleagues and friends and family members have really struggled in this time. For, for all kinds of reasons, because the, um, the murder of George Floyd and so many others feel so personal, um, because COVID is affecting the black community and the brown community so profoundly. And, and, and the numbers, I mean, in some ways, the numbers are proving what we already knew, right? If you and I had spoken at the very beginning of this pandemic, we could have told you who is going to be most affected by the virus and who is going to be most affected by the economic downturn which followed. And we now know, you know, there's some numbers out in the last couple of weeks from the Brookings Institution that found that that Latinos are more likely to get sick compared to other groups. African-Americans are more likely to die than other groups by a factor in, if you're comparing age cohorts, the, like people of the same age, in some cases by a factor of 10. And, and Latinos by a factor of eight. That's those are staggering numbers and staggering disparities, and and we're feeling it. Um, so I I think two things are true. Um, it's important. I think uh, everybody goes through this differently. It's important to be able to name what you need to understand what it is that you need and name it and to and to um, find ways to um, to make the space for it. So, and, and it's important to do that for the people around you, right? To help um, create, and we're doing this very deliberately at work. I work in a, you know, an organization with a lot of diversity. I have colleagues who are dealing with the pain of this, who have colleagues who have been ill, colleagues who are trying to work and take care of kids while school is closed. It's a lot. And at the same time, we're all asking ourselves, what more should I be doing? Um, it's a lot. And so... Uh, the notion of make, making space to take care of yourself, the notion of making sure you have inputs so that if you are also a person who who is getting out there and protesting or finding ways to feed your neighbors or engaging in some way, that's output that you that you have some of both. Um, because I mean this this particular crisis has been a long haul and we have a long way to go. But even beyond that, um, the healing that's going to need to take place, the remaking of our economy that's going to need to take place, and really the remaking of a new economy that's going to need to take place, that's on us too. It's a lot. Exactly. Wow, it definitely is. And, um, you know, one of your quotes, we are the leaders we need right now. Um, I believe that, we, you know, we just need to lift that up. And um, when I think about the leadership of the Obama administration, one of the most, if not the only, um, diverse of any presidency, racially, ethnically, gender, 
Um, as an Afro-Latina, I am constantly navigating between my blackness and my Latinidadness, you know, navigating those those two um, cultures. Although I grew up in one culture, I mean, being in the United States, it's, you know, you're identified by the color of your skin. What are the lessons you learned from working in that type of a diverse environment that um, we as women of color can adopt in our own work environments? Because many, many times we're like the first or the only. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much. And it's interesting that you say, you know, that you're dealing, you deal with your blackness all the time and your Latinidad all the time, because we kind of don't create the space to allow you to be both, right? right. It's as if right. the rest of us kind of only pay attention to one factor at a time and you you get to be all of those amazing things. And, and you know, there's reams of evidence now that um, having a, you know, the, the, Tables where decisions are getting made, having those tables be full of a diverse array of people is not just something that we do because it's nice, although it is quite nice. We do it because you make better decisions that way, right? It's a better way to run the country to make sure that you are um, governing for everyone. If you've got people with a range of experience, if you've got some, some of everybody in the room, um, and that's not just true in government. It's true in a in, in a in any workplace in a in a corporate setting. It's true in a school. We, there is now reams of evidence that if you have diversity in the room, you make better decisions. You have more information at the table. You get you are more productive. You are, um, you know, the metrics are off the charts. So we know this to be true, but it is still also overwhelmingly true that the people making decisions that affect your life and mine are sitting in rooms with very little diversity. That's true in government. It's true in the corporate sector. It's true in so many sectors that affect our lives. And that is to our detriment. Think of how much it's to our detriment right now that it's, it's literally costing, costing lives. And think of the countries which are doing well in this pandemic and how many of them are led by women, by the right. way. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, but I also learned that we're always calibrating, and I feel this very much myself, and I'm guessing that this might be true for you too. When you're in a room where you're the only one, when am I putting my foot on the gas and pressing an issue? When am I taking my foot off of the gas because people can't hear me right now? I, I felt constantly aware of not wanting to be the gadfly that when I walk in the room, people think, oh, okay, she's here. We know what's going to happen. We're going to get to a certain point of the conversation and she's going to say the thing that she always says and we're going to nod politely and then we're going to get on with our business. And you don't want to be that person that everybody tunes out because you're always raising the thing. But on the other hand, sometimes it's your responsibility to raise the thing, right, to, to say it. And so calibrating, when am I going to be effective and how, what's the best way to do this and be effective? And sometimes the way to be effective is to pull back. And how do I know that today is that day as opposed to a day to be full tilt? And I will say that I have this conversation with my daughters. I have, I have two adult daughters and they see me, and maybe this is a generational thing. They see me as being a person who ties herself up into knots trying to modulate so that the people that I'm in the room with will hear me. I, I work really hard to find a way to get my point across so that it will be absorbed because I need them to, I need to bring them with me. And my daughters are just not having it. <laughs> and their view is, 
my job is to be me. <laughs> and so I will do that. And if you can handle it, then good for you. And if you can't, then that's kind of not my problem. And so we're in this dialogue about that. And I so admire and respect that that's where they are. But, you know, I'm a policymaker. And in order to make policy, like, I need your vote. <laughs> I need you to understand and, and agree to do what I need you to do in order to move us forward. And for me, that requires some modulation. Um, and, but that conversation about how much do we push, how authentic are we in the room, is just a constant challenge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very hard one to navigate because sometimes you're in the space where I just want to go all out and just be, you know, completely transparent and say what I want to say. And then other times, you know, it backfires. And I, you know, we've all learned those lessons. Yep. The hard way. Yeah. Yep. It helps to have a strategy. And I advise people, you know, the really in, in almost any setting, certainly in any workplace setting, but in lots of other settings as well, if you know, you're going to reach that point where the group does not know the thing that you know, and they need to, it helps to, um, to have a strategy for how you're going to raise it. It helps. To, I, I, practice. I assemble my data so that I can make a data-based argument instead of an emotional argument. I, I plot out who are my allies going to be, and I may work them over in advance of the conversation. Like I'm, you know, it can help to leave nothing to chance to make sure that if, right, if you're going to have to make the point that you've done some preparation so that the point's going to get across. Right. Yeah. So strategizing, that's critically important. Um, I'm sure it was for you and your position in the White House and your current position at New Americas. Um, how do we, you know, I'm looking at this younger generation of women that are coming up and we at Leader Spring, we have um, a cohort of 18 women of color leaders and another cohort of 14 emerging leaders of color, most of whom are women. And and we're really trying to to help them understand the difference between you know, strategizing, you know, having the meeting before the meeting, knowing the answer before the answer. How, how do you get that through to our younger generations? You were speaking of your two daughters um, and how their, their reactions, actions are very much different from ours. So I think it helps to do it in, in context, in a, to have a real situation that you're dealing with that you're planning for, right? A result that you're really trying to get to. Um, because if you're driving towards a result, then the need for a strategy becomes much more clear. Um, I think so much of the conversation that my daughters and I have is just about expression and about being authentic. And I, they're, and they're teaching me a lot. Um, but at the same time, if the three of us are uh, trying to accomplish an objective, getting you know the city council to vote for the thing which is going to get more resources into the schools, for example, then it's not enough to expression is not enough. For that, you need strategy, right? You need to count votes. You need to figure out what are your leverage points. And so the more specific the conversation gets about what it, what is the objective, um, the easier it is to move people into a strategic frame of mind. I think, um, you know, I, I've, I've been an advocate my whole career, there is a place for just being righteous sometimes, right? There is a place for just lifting up the pain people feel. We are in such a moment, right, where people are, many people in the country are beginning to understand an experience that they haven't had, but that our neighbors do have and have all the time, right? That, that 
So there are people who didn't understand police violence under, are understanding it in a different way because it's on film. Exactly. Um, exactly. And so that creates an opportunity to, to, to strategize. But, but you don't get to strategy until you've lifted up the painful part. So there is... You know, there is a place for simply, for righteous anger and for simply simply lifting up the thing that needs to be fixed. But I'm a big believer in combining that with the strategy to fix it. So so being in that anger spot, <laughs> in that place of, of the unknown, I think, which is where we all are with this global pandemic and with the protest and with the 2020 elections coming up in November, um, you know, we're, and because we're all sheltering in place, you know, we're not out, you know, doing our normal running around. It's, you know, the whole notion of how to be strategic in dealing with all of these issues. Um, and then the importance of women in leadership, as, as you have said, as you have pointed out, um, how do we, how do we mobilize ourselves? How do we do this when, you know, we're trying to take care of ourselves and our families and work from home, which means we're navigating, you know, being being teacher and being mother and being whatever our position is. Um, how, how do we mobilize ourselves around the upcoming when, elections? When you think about it, we've already started, right? It, I mean, if anyone would have said to us six months ago that we're about to live through a period where we are doing all of the things you just named, we are hunkering down at home, we are homeschooling our kids while holding down our jobs, um, while keeping ourselves and our communities safe, while, you know, protesting and, and participating in, in the largest protest movement our country has ever seen. Our uh, world. Right, it's a global protest. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, six months ago, every single one of those things was unimaginable, and here we are. Um, so I think we're already doing it. Uh, now it's important to find a way to do it in a sustainable way, right? Because this this we have an opportunity for this moment of awareness and this moment of protest and this moment where people are feeling and recognizing that we have power, which we do. Mm -hmm. yes. um, we have an opportunity to not only turn that into, God willing, a positive result in the election. There isn't just one possible positive result in the election. We don't just need the presidency. We also need the Senate of the United States, and we need a better margin in the House of Representatives. And we need city councils, and we need state houses, and we need district attorneys and um, sheriffs. And right, if we're, if we're just on the question of policing, if we're going to get to justice, if we're going to get to a different conception of how to preserve public safety in this country, that's not just the presidency. In fact, that's mostly not the presidency. Right. That's yeah. um, engaging in local elections. That's in figuring out who the prosecutors are going to be, um, because that's a big part of where the measure of justice is going to take place. So. We, we uh, it's clear that we have that capacity. We've demonstrated that capacity. Um, the the midterm elections of a couple of years ago were a moment where we demonstrated that capacity. So we have it, um, but we have to sustain it. Um, and you know, there's that we are in a moment where at this very moment we're asking people to fill out the census. That's another moment of incredible importance and also incredible power. 
Um, and then we also need to be thinking past the moment of the election. It's not enough, as I learned when we were in government, it's not enough to elect really wonderful people. They, In order to accomplish what we need them to accomplish, they need movements behind them. And um, I think too often we think we're going to elect a brilliant person and the president I served is a brilliant person. Uh, he needed movements behind him to get the Affordable Care Act passed. And that almost didn't happen. And we're still fighting for it. Right. Um, right. And uh, and so I think we need to understand this is not this is not a sprint. This is a lifelong commitment. And we live in a democracy. We own it. And we are we have come close to breaking it. But it is within our power to fix. And that's what we have to do now. So speaking of elected positions, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna dig a little deeper, because I know, you know, you know, Biden very well, working in the White House, and the importance of women in leadership. And we've seen um, in Senate and House of Reps and at the local level, many women and women of color are being elected for the first time. We have a Muslim woman, we have um, a Latina who comes, you know, from the hood, we have um, uh, Native American women for the first time, uh, disabled veteran um, for the first time. And so there are a lot of firsts that we're seeing. We're still not on par if you look at the demographics, uh, the gender demographics. Not um, even close. We're not even close. That's right. Um, and so as we continue to lift women up, and, and my oldest son, when he was probably in the sixth grade when Obama was running against Hillary Clinton in the primaries. And he said to me, mom, I really want Obama to win. But I think if I was voting now, I would vote for Hillary because we need women just get things done, you know? And so I'm thinking, oh, my little feminist son. <laughs> nice job. Um, yeah. Nice job, mom. So when I, when I think, you know, and all the talk right now about who will Biden's running may be, you know, do you think he will choose a woman of color as his running mate? I don't know, but I hope he will. I know he's he's committed to choose a woman. I hope that woman will be a woman of color. Um, but, you know, it's extraordinary to me that here we are in 2020, and in the primary process, we, ju we still had a debate about whether the country is willing to accept leadership by a woman. And again, this is part of the reason that I wrote the book. The... The, and there's a chapter in the book um, uh, focused on kindness. Yes. And yes. Because for really all of our understanding of what leadership looks like, what leadership sounds like, the way leaders behave, has been shaped by centuries in which our leaders were men and they were a particular kind of man. And, and, and you know, that's shaped our internal expectation of literally what the voice of a leader sounds like. And so we still have trouble listening to a voice like yours or a voice like mine and thinking that that's the voice of a leader. Um, I'm five feet, two inches tall. Uh, I, one, of the, one of the other things I discuss in the book is that it's not easy to be, to be a short woman who just physically doesn't take up much space in the room and to convey power and authority. And I adopted strategies, some of them fairly silly, in order to do that. Um, and because I was aware that when I walked in the room, people weren't going to see power because we 
expect power to come in a tall package. We expect it to come in a male package. Right, um, right. And so we're still, as a country, getting in our own way when it comes to, um, you know, making sure we can we can bring the best leaders to the table. Now, I have a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence in Vice President Biden. I worked with him closely. This is a deeply good man and a deeply committed public servant and a man who, um, you know, this is a man who, who leads with his heart. I mean, he really does. The, 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 the Joe Biden you think you know is the guy he, he actually is. And I have a lot of confidence in him. I'm excited by the notion that he's going to choose a woman. I'm excited, even more excited by the generation of leadership that is developing now. I mean, the reason we've just elected so many awesome women of color is because they stepped up and ran. And uh, and if we're going to ultimately break that glass ceiling, which of course we will, and I hope we do it soon, uh, it will be because it is just indisputable how powerful we are. And what I'm hoping, especially young women who read my book, will get from it is to recognize that they already have what it takes. Um, that, look, when you think about it, women of color have been leaders for a really long time. Right, uh, the data on African American women in leadership roles in community institutions, in churches, in our families, in, in in our in our communities, you know, and running the PTA, like all the things which keep a community going, that's been going on for a really long time. We just have failed to understand that as leadership, and we need to get over that. Um, uh, the and look at the extent to which we are counting on black women to deliver the uh, the election. Uh, what is that if not leadership? Um, so part of the challenge is that we need to recognize the qualities that we have been bringing to the table all of this time as leadership qualities um, and assert ourselves and kind of stop doing, frankly, what I did, which is say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have been trained to not take up too much space in the room. And so I'm going to be soft-spoken and I'm going to, um, you know, be modest. Those are good qualities. They're, they're, they are who I am. They're also leadership qualities. And it's, it's time we learn to recognize that. Exactly. So as we're as we're breaking the glass ceiling, and I think I think we're more than just chipping at it. I think I think we've already like gotten our first hammer through that first layer of glass. Um, one of the chapters in your book, Sharp Elbows and Other Tools, um, those are strategies for, you know, how to be your authentic self um, in, in any given environment. And um, could you talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, how do we have sharp elbows um, and at the same time, you know, be our authentic selves if um, because we're not trying to replicate men in the workplace. You know, we're trying to bring who we are authentically into the workplace. But men have established this culture in the workplace that is very masculine and, um, you know, very uh, opposite to how we show up. And so talk a little bit about those sharp yeah. elbows and other tools. Yeah. So the the name of that chapter is really based on a story from early in my career when my five foot two self was trying to break into the immigration advocacy circle in Washington, which happened to be very male 
and most of those guys were pretty tall. And uh, the story is that at the end of a congressional markup, they all kind of stood up and they formed a little huddle and I wasn't in the huddle. And I complained to my boss. I said, you know, I'm having trouble breaking in, like literally breaking in. And he said, look, you're new. You know, you're a woman, you're short, you're Latina. The guys were not, none of them were Latino. He's like, you know, so that's like, it's a lot. Um, And so next time they do it, just, just poke them with your elbow and say, like, guys, can you let a colleague in here? And, and I did, but and I only had to do it once. Um, but sometimes you have to, to do the audacious thing just to break the ice a little bit, to help people see, see what you were doing here. You guys were standing in a circle, and here I am on the outside of it. I know you're better than that. So sometimes you have to do the audacious thing in order to make room for the collegial relationship that you want to build. Uh, so I, that's a lesson that I learned. I also learned that it matters to um, to ask for feedback, to um, find people that you can trust. I did this in the White House all the time. I would go into Valerie Jarrett's office and close the door and say, whew, that meeting did not go well. Like, help me see what I didn't see. Help me see what I can do better. And I knew that she would tell me the truth. And I also knew that she wouldn't hold it against me that I was asking, that she understood it in the spirit of, look, I'm trying to up my game here. Will you help me do that? And I wouldn't do that with everybody that I worked with, but I did find the people who were safe to, to ask for feedback from. And I was relentless in asking for it so that I, from my peers, from people that I reported to, and from people who reported to me, my team was also instrumental in helping me succeed, not just because they were awesome and, you know, and did excellent work, but because I could ask them what do you need from me? What do I need to do better in order to lift up your work more effectively? And they would tell me. So feedback is another really important strategy. Um, and then, you know, calibrating those times when um, when you need to say the difficult thing, right? And finding a way to say it effectively. The thing that you understand that other people in the room don't understand. Um, it's not easy to do. And, you know, I've, there's some strategies in the book for overcoming fear and for recognizing, okay, fear, there it is. I am feeling it. And you know why I'm feeling it? Because this is scary. Like there's nothing wrong with feeling fear. Courage isn't the absence of fear, right? Courage is, okay, I'm feeling fear and now I'm going to go do the hard thing anyway. Right. Exactly. Exactly. How do we pass the torch? How do we pass the torch to... Um, Wow, I, I have been in the presence of some amazing young women um, uh, in their 20s and 30s. And um, the, this generation, they don't do what we did. They don't get into a position and expect to be there for 20 years. <laughs> you know, um, very, very different, um, very, very different type of outlook on, you know, building a career. Um, so how do we pass the torch when we know that we have been the first and the only in many of our positions, and we really want to make sure that we're not the last. And so how do we cultivate, you know, that that mentorship and that sponsorship for young women when um, culturally, we look at the workplace um, very differently? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it requires very deliberate effort. It needs to be something that you are trying to do all the time, right? And I, I 
among the pieces of advice I give in the book is that at any stage of your career, not just when you're an elder, but when you're when you're starting out your career, you can still be the person who makes way for others. Um, for example, you know, you can be the person who sits at the table and says, I'm noticing that she's really shining today, but her boss isn't in the room to see her shine. So I'm going to shoot a little note to the boss to say, you know what? She was having a great day today and you have a real star on your hands. That's a way that you, at any stage in your career, you can set a tone that you are about lifting up your colleagues. Um, you know, when I got to the White House, I mean, it was not a foregone conclusion that this was going to be a really collegial group of people. White Houses are famously cutthroat. People who had served in the White House previously had said to me, like, you got, you're going to have to watch your back and, like, even your friends aren't going to be your friends. And, um, but I was fortunate enough to, to work for a president who, who was having none of that, but also a circle of women who, and really this is a result of Valerie Jarrett's leadership, who just set the tone of, you know, you know what, we're going to watch out for each other. That's what we're going to do here. We're going to have each other's backs. We're going to make sure that we're making room at the table for the other women. Um, when somebody makes a great point, um, and then, you know, and then a man makes the same point and everybody hears him, we're going to be the one to say, actually, it was Jennifer who said that the first time. Let's just all notice who said it first. Um, uh, you can be that person who's being very deliberate. And uh, especially if you are, you know, in our situation where we're the first or the, or the only one in the room, there you know, you can do one or two things. You can kind of preserve the the power for yourself or you can find ways to share it. You can find ways to bring other people in. You can find ways to spread it around. And I have never, ever regretted finding ways to spread it around and being the one who says, you know what, at, at, the, at this next meeting, we're going to go over the thing that you know so well. So, like, you should be the one to present. Like, And if you want to practice... Let's do that, but like, let's give you your moment to shine. It has to be something you're deliberate about all the time. And if you set that tone, I find that it means you're modeling the behavior that you're encouraging others to adopt. And you can take a, a workplace where people are thinking maybe they have to compete with each other and make it a workplace where people are lifting each other up. And boy, is that kind of workplace a joy to be in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What's next for Cecilia Munoz? Are we going to, can we expect another book? <laughs> what's, what's next on your bucket list? I have not thought about, I mean, I never thought of writing this book until it was <laughs> upon me. So, you know, I'm doing, um, the work that I'm doing at New America, I'm very excited about. We're building a project on public interest technology that is about leveraging the skills that technologists have so that government and NGOs can better serve the people that we're trying to serve. And what's happening in this moment is a really excellent example of why it's important. You know, Congress passed this thing, the CARES Act, to get literally trillions of dollars into the pockets of people who need that money right now so that they can pay their rent. And, you know, we've uncovered that tens of millions of people haven't gotten that money. And, you know, the team that I work with has uncovered that... Um, one of the ways in which the federal government has tried to clear out some of the obstacles to getting folks that money has created other obstacles um, that nobody knew about until we uncovered them. So 
we can, the, the same techniques that the Silicon Valley uses to develop the thing that you're, you and I are going to have on our phones next week that we, you know, two weeks from now, we don't know how we lived without. Those techniques can be applied to how government delivers the things that it delivers. And we can do it much more effectively. And it, those tools can be applied to how NGOs deliver the nutritional assistance or whatever else it is that we're trying to do. And in this moment, we are seeing why that's so necessary. We're still delivering services using the same tools that we were using 30 years ago when I started doing this work. And 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 we know we can do better. And um, and the crisis we're living through now is an excellent example, an excellent example of why we need to do better. So I'm. Um, so that's that's what I'm doing, and I feel incredibly lucky to be doing it at New America and to, to be doing it in a way that's also working at an organization where you can do good work for the world and also, you know, do it in a way that's sustainable for your life, which is something that Anne-Marie Slaughter in particular has committed herself to. So I'm very lucky. I may be, you know, helping out with a political campaign here and there between now and November, as we all should. Um and, you know, feeling like I, as all of us do, have to figure out what's ours to do to try to make make the world the place it needs we need it to be. Wonderful. Wow. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Wow. Um, I was I was so excited uh, to be asked to do this. And then when I read your book, wow. Yeah, just, well, just one amazing. The, thank you. <laughs> One of the things that's been so gratifying about this experience, because it's, as you might imagine, it's not easy to get a book out into the world in the middle of a pandemic. Right, right. But um, it is finding its way to women and to women of color in particular. Um, and I've had a number of total strangers write to me to say, I really needed this right now. So I'm, I'm so grateful um, I, to get that feedback. And if it gets into the hands of folks who find it useful, there's kind of nothing better than that. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. This has been so wonderful having this conversation with you. Um, I have learned more <laughs> that I, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of speechless at this point, but thank you so much for writing the book. And I encourage everyone to read it, men, women, get it for your children, your colleagues, more than ready, be strong and be you and other lessons for women of color on the rise. And um, wow, we we look forward to seeing what happens next. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been so lovely to get to know you. And thank you for leading the conversation. And to all of our participants, thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a part of it. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.